All right, at this time, I want to dismiss our three to six-year-olds to tot time. So if you have a three to six-year-old who is potty trained, they're welcome to go to tot time. They'll have a uh, kind of age-appropriate lesson for them. That's back in the Martha room in the corner of the church. And uh, church, today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 17. So if you will stand with me, if you are able, and read together from the book of Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, last week I shared kind of a fun phrase, talked about ghosting, how I appreciate that phrase. I don't appreciate the idea of ghosting, but I like the idea. So today I thought I would share a meme with you. This is my favorite meme. Okay, this is old. It's like 10 years old, right? But many of you may have seen this. If you've not, welcome to my world. There is a small group of us in the church that uh, share memes with each other all day long, and uh, it brings great joy to my heart. Uh, But this one I think really is my all-time favorite. It's, uh, you know, we have the This Is Fine dog. His house is clearly on fire, and he's just sitting there drinking his coffee. This is fine. This is fine. And church, isn't this us so often? Like, as the world burns around us, and maybe our own lives, like, we just have this temptation where we just want to sit there and, like, I'm just going to ignore it. (laughs) Like, this is fine. We see stuff in our hearts, the rottenness the junk in our lives, and not just the stuff out there, but really the stuff in here. And our tendency and our temptation, really, is to just look at all of that and say, this is fine. Well, today we're seeing that not everything is fine, and, but our passage calls us to examine our lives and really admit, yes, indeed, everything is not fine. We've been in our Behold Your King series. We've seen Jesus' compassion and His authority. We've seen these miracles going in sets of three. We started with a set of three. We saw Jesus uh, touching those and healing those who were untouchable. Then we had a little kind of interlude on discipleship followed by three more miracles demonstrating His great authority. 
It's great authority over nature and the demonic. And then we saw even forgiving of sins, the, author- the beautiful authority he has to do that. And today we reach another little interlude on discipleship. Specifically, what is the posture of disciples? Who is a disciple? What do they look like? And today's section is all about that. Now, today's section kind of comes in two parts. And you may be familiar with the calling of Matthew, and you may not realize that that second part, all about kind of the wineskins and the garment and the bridegroom, all of these things, they go with the first part. Because all of this is the interlude of discipleship that's sandwiched in between these sets of three miracles. So Matthew very much intends us to read these two together. Now, you may have read the second part and been like, what in the world is he even talking about? And how does that connect with Jesus calling Matthew and inviting sinners to come eat with him? Like, what is going on? Well, hopefully by the end of the day, you'll see that. But my big hope today, you see too, is ultimately that we have a cold. There is a cold that we need to catch. Or in other words, we need to see ourselves as spiritually sick. We need to see ourselves as spiritually sick. But church, there is hope. I don't say that we need to see ourselves as spiritually hope to make us feel bad, but to say it's the sick that God comes to. It's the sick that God heals. All right, so our first point for today. We are tempted to believe that we aren't spiritually sick. We're tempted to believe that we aren't spiritually sick. Now, this may feel a little obvious to you, but again, I hopefully when I preach, I'm saying obvious things. That's clearly what the text is kind of getting at as we look at the Pharisees. They were tempted to believe that they weren't spiritually sick. So let's start back again in verse 9. Jesus comes and sees this guy, Matthew, says to him, follow me. And Matthew responds and follows him. If you recall back in our first interlude on discipleship, we have that idea of the cost of following Jesus. So Matthew, again, kind of picks up that thread with Matthew being called to follow Jesus. Now, this is kind of a surprising thing because we've just seen Jesus' mighty authority, calming a storm, casting out demons, forgiving sins. And look at the guy that he calls to follow him. We have the guy who's been giving evidence that he is the God of the universe, and he calls a tax collector, a sinner. This guy is the one who is invited to follow Jesus. I think for many of us, if we were sitting there watching Jesus, we'd be like, that guy? Jesus, are you sure? Look at all these other guys over here. They're educated. They're knowledgeable. They got their world and their life put together. But you want the tax collector? Tax collectors were on the outside of respectable life. They were traitors. See, the Romans, they basically would take people from the indigenous population and they would hire them to be tax collectors. And so the Romans were occupying Israel and So the tax collectors were basically saying, we're going to collaborate with the Romans. We're going to raise their taxes. We're going to collect their taxes for them. Not only that, tax collectors tended to take more than was necessary, and that's where they got their salary. So it was not only were you collaborating with the enemy, but you're generally corrupt. You were on the outside of respectable life. And Jesus says to this guy, come and follow me. Follow me. And Matthew, as we see, does indeed respond. He rises and follows Jesus. Well, then the tension mounts even more, because now we don't just have one tax collector. 
Jesus then reclines at table with many tax collectors and sinners. By the way, they ate kind of laying down, reclining on their side. So that's why we get this language here of Jesus reclining. So he is associating with all of those people who you should not associate with. And the Pharisees see this and they're like, why does your teacher, you can kind of imagine them putting teacher in scare quotes, being like, this guy can't possibly be a teacher because look at the company that he keeps. Maybe the Pharisees had Psalm 26 verses 4 and 5 in mind. It reads this, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked so perhaps they're looking at that and saying, Jesus, if you really knew what was going on, if you were truly righteous, Jesus, you wouldn't hang out with those sinners, those wicked people. But these are the people that Jesus is going to. The psalmist isn't saying that you don't ever associate with them. You're saying you don't run with them. You don't live like them. But Jesus is going to them and seeking to love them. So we're going to see Jesus' rebuke in verse 12. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees are well. He's not looking at them and saying, Well, you got your life put together. You're really right with God. He's not saying that. He's saying, Pharisees, you can't even see your sickness. I'm going to the ones who understand their sickness and are receiving me and the forgiveness that I offer. He's saying, Pharisees, you're so sick that you don't even know you're sick. Now, why did the Pharisees not think that they were sick? They followed the rules. They had their life put together. They knew their Bible backwards and forwards. Their lives were neatly manicured. There was nothing you could look at and say, well, hey, you've, you've transgressed this part of the law. It's really clear in your life. No, they followed the law to a T. And there's an underlying belief when you operate in that type of way. And it's basically that God loves those who measure up to certain standards. If I'm driven by a need to have my whole life in order, in order to gain acceptance in the surrounding world, but also in the eyes of God, I am believing that God loves those who measure up to particular standards. Truth is, we can't measure up to God's standards. We haven't. We have rebelled against Him. We have sinned. So the standard is something we ultimately can't attain, obtain. But we still fool ourselves into thinking that somehow, even though we're spiritually sick, I'm just going to have the external part of my life in order. doesn't really matter if my heart is still full of junk. God, you'll like me. I'll, just, I'll do all the right stuff. I'll say the right things. And church, this is a huge temptation for us in the church. We want to have our lives put together. That's why I love the, the way our church purpose statement starts. Confessing our brokenness. If we're truly going to be walking with God, that is step one. And I love that that speaks right into the true temptation of our life, to think that we aren't spiritually sick. I think it works its way out practically in our lives when we're not believing that we're sick in some very real ways that create significant harm in our life. 
And I'm going to talk about two for men in particular. Sorry, ladies, I'm not trying to ignore you, but I'm just thinking of my own experience in working with men. There's, there's two, very much in, uh, two things in particular that, that, that affect us. One, we don't talk and discuss the pornography epidemic. A lot of men, you know, we, we've talked about the figures before. It's a majority of men are dealing with this issue, not just outside the church, but in the church. But how many of the men in the church feel the freedom to come and talk about this issue. We know that we're sick, yet we're too afraid to actually talk with one another and get help from one another. And so we just suffer in silence. Our hearts slowly decaying. We feel like we're rotting away inside. And meanwhile, we try to make everything else in our life look good when Jesus is saying, look, it's not the well who need the doctor, it's the sick. Come to me as the physician. Second thing is very closely related, but men in particular, we generally won't talk about our emotional life or not just the emotional things, but the trouble that we're experiencing. So sometimes you're like, oh, I don't want to be all emotional and kind of have all that. And some guys aren't particularly emotional. That's okay. But are we afraid to even share about the difficult things that are going on? Like, man, my, my day at work stunk. Or do we just, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. Everything's fine. Rox hates it when I give the answer of, you know, how, how, how are you doing? How was your day? Fine. But that's my favorite answer is fine. Because it's like, I don't want to talk about it. So like, I, I feel this myself. But the truth is, is that it's as we acknowledge our brokenness and say, look at the sickness that I have and everything's not fine. It's only then that I can find healing. It's only then that we can find healing. So we are sick. We're tempted to believe that we're not sick, or at least act like we're not sick. But praise God that recognizing our sickness leads to something beautiful. So here's our first point. We're spiritually sick. Secondly, in mercy, God invites and receives those who recognize their spiritual sickness. You know, today I don't want it to be about, church, you're spiritually sick. I really do want to lift our eyes to Jesus. Because Jesus is making the point of like, look, come to me. God receives those who recognize their spiritual sickness. Not only does He receive them, but He invites them. You know, Jesus didn't have to be convinced to receive Matthew. Jesus took the initiative with Matthew. Jesus is taking the initiative with you. He is inviting you to come before Him as a sick sinner because He receives us. Think about the song that we sang. Behold our God seated on His throne. Come let us adore Him. This is not an invitation to those who are not sick. It's an invitation to those who are sick. But the beauty is, is that the God who has all power and authority and glory has a heart of compassion and tender mercy. He's not throwing lightning bolts down at those who humbly come before Him. He's welcoming them. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about us confidently coming before the throne of grace, not the throne of terror. He's a throne of terror to those who refuse to come to Him as broken. Those who are haughty and say, Lord, I don't need Your help. Then it is a throne of terror because we stand in opposition to Him. Let's look a little more at Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He rebukes them further. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
go and learn what this means would be kind of a corrective thing that you would, uh, that rabbis would say to disciples who were in error. So this is kind of like, you guys don't get it. You need to go study some more. You got your answers wrong. Go take the test again. Go study. And we get this quote from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, on a surface level reading of that, we see that and think, well, is God saying that He wants those who show mercy to others? Now, on one hand, yes. However, I think ultimately there's something far more deeper and multi-layered or multifaceted that's actually going on here. We're going to go back and spend some time in Hosea 6. Because if we want to understand what Jesus is actually saying here, we don't just want to pull this as some sort of magical phrase, but we want to see back to the context that Jesus is referring to. In Matthew, whenever Jesus kind of, or whenever Matthew quotes Jesus, and, and we have kind of this little one line, he is rarely just pulling one line. He's referring back to entire sections. So let's go back together to Hosea. 6 and understand what's going on. In Hosea 5, we see God rebuking Israel for turning to other nations and uh, for help specifically and for practicing idolatry. And he's calling them back to himself. And we get this in verse 1 of Hosea 6. I should actually turn there in my own Bible. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know Yahweh. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Okay, this sounds pretty positive, right? It's like, oh, it seems like they've kind of getting their act together, and they're putting forth the perspective that they ought to have, or a posture that they ought to have. Well, we're going to see that this posture is maybe not perhaps as genuine as it seems at first glance. Verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. A morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Basically, he's saying, you say these words. Let us return to the Lord. You're saying this, but you don't mean it. Your love is like a cloud. The sun comes out, it burns it away, it's gone. Israel, this is what your love is like. You don't love me. That's the rebuke that God is giving in Hosea chapter 6. And then in verse 6, we get the key verse. Therefore, or sorry, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Steadfast love. I've talked about this before, but this is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. Steadfast love. This overwhelming, never giving up, always and forever love that one covenant party would have for the other. It says, I am committed to you forever. I will uphold my end of the bargain. God says, that's what I want from you because that's what I have for you. Now, when we look in Matthew, why do we get the word mercy? The Greek translation of our Old Testament translates this word chesed into the Greek word for mercy. So when Jesus 
is looking back to Hosea 6. He's not just saying mercy in this sense of, I just want you to have mercy on other people. He's really talking about this deeper idea of you have a steadfast love for God that then rightly results in a steadfast love for other people to where you are merciful. So it is a deep sense of you have this incredible love for God that comes from the inside out. In Hosea, we're seeing that God wants them to recognize their waywardness and come to Him. He doesn't want them to just follow external rules of doing the right sacrifices and then not have a heart that loves Him. And that's the exact same thing that Jesus is seeing in the life of the Pharisees. They have this external life where everything is right. They're doing all their sacrifices. They're tithing even their spices. And He's like, but you don't love the Lord. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I desire steadfast love. And he says, I can see that you don't have steadfast love. Why? Because you don't have mercy for sinners. He's like, look at me. I'm eating with these sinners, these tax collectors. You should be rejoicing because God has moved towards the least of these. Pharisees, you know the Scriptures. You should see these sinners turning to the Lord and say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! But instead, you're like, why are you doing that? He's like, because you don't know the Lord and it's clear through your behavior. All you're doing is merely following the Lord. You are just like the idolatrous and adulterous Israelites. That's a big insult to the Pharisees because the whole reason why they have their whole kind of system was like, we don't want to fall into idolatry again. And Jesus is saying, you've fallen into idolatry again. It's a worship now of self and religiosity and legalism instead of coming to the God of the universe and begging for mercy because that's what you need. Jesus is emphasizing a need or the need for whole person righteousness. We talked a lot about that in the Sermon on the Mount. So here it is popping up again. He's emphasizing the need for whole person righteousness that moves from the inside out. Moves from the inside out. So just as a reminder, in mercy, God invites and receives those who recognize their spiritual sickness. Now, I'm not going to move on from point two. I'm going to speak about it for a little bit longer, but I'm going to kind of tie in this next section of Matthew into this, because you may be wondering, okay, we haven't talked about our wineskins yet. What's going on with the wineskins? How does this fit? Trust me, it does. Ultimately, we see this kind of next section really is all about discipleship still, about what it means to be a disciple, the heart of the disciple, and how God is inviting those who recognize their spiritual sickness. Okay, you may still be saying, huh? How? Well, let's see. Spoiler alert, there's going to be a little bit more of Hosea. Anyway, so back in verse 14 of Matthew. The disciples of John came to him, that is Jesus, saying, Why do we, and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. It's like, Jesus, hey, we're doing all these spiritual things. We're being pious. Why aren't you guys doing that? Stephen has kind of echoes from what we see in the Sermon on the Mount when we talked about those kind of areas of piety. Fasting was one of the things that people in uh, Jesus' day did as a sign of their devotion to God. I think we should still fast nowadays. We even see that in the next little bit that we're going to read. But Jesus uh, is approached with this question, or this accusation, really, saying, hey, you're not being pious. You're not being spiritual. And Jesus responds with the three images. First is the bridegroom, and then we get the, the, the garment with the cloth, and then the, the wineskins. And I think the key is really found in the first illustration. 
in the first illustration about the bridegroom. So in this, Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You'll be like, okay, Jesus, huh? <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? <clears throat> they ask you why you don't fast, and your response is basically, well, I'm here. Okay, um, that's a little odd, but gotcha. Well, there's, again, Matthew, and, and uh, kind of quoting Jesus here, is digging into something a little bit deeper, and it's coming from Hosea. It's coming from Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 is all about a bridegroom. So starting, I'm going to read uh, verses 16 to 20 out of Hosea 2. It says this. I should actually turn back there before I do it. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So they were worshiping idols, specifically Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, and here's that word again, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. If you remember back in Hosea 6.6, 6, we had, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here we have steadfast love and them knowing the Lord. So Jesus here, by referencing Hosea 2, well, specifically in Hosea 2, excuse me, let me explain that for just a bit. We see that Hosea is speaking of a time a glorious future time where God himself, Yahweh, was going to come as a bridegroom for his people and that they would truly love the Lord, that their hearts would be oriented toward him. They wouldn't just say, I love you in word, but their entire heart would love him. They would be crying out to mercy for him and they would have mercy on others. They will have chesed and they will know the Lord. So when Jesus says, the bridegroom's here. In Matthew chapter 9, he is saying, remember in Hosea, when Hosea promised this future time? It's now. I'm the bridegroom. This time of people knowing me in full is here. My disciples know me. They are the promised re recipients or the, the recipients of this promise to where their entire hearts will be oriented towards the Lord. So why did Jesus' disciples not fast? Because they're responding rightly to God. They don't need to fast with Jesus in their presence because there is great joy. They aren't just fasting because if you just fast to fast, you're just observing religious stipulations. And he's saying that's not what they do. They don't just do religious stuff to do religious stuff. Why would they need to fast right now? I'm right here. It's a joyful time. But he says, there will be a day where I won't be with them. And then they'll fast because they'll need to be relying on me. So now in the church age, we do fast because we long for our Savior and we continually rely upon our Savior. So fasting is a way for us to express that reliance. I encourage you, if, if fasting is not part of your spiritual discipline life, add to it. Fast through a meal, maybe once a week or start, start small, once a month from one meal or a day, once a month, whatever it takes to kind of start doing that. And God, and, and use that to cultivate in your heart 
a reliance upon the Lord, not just a, oh, I fast to fast, but from the heart that says, oh, Lord, I need you and I want you. So Jesus is responding to this question, basically saying, the promise of Hosea, too, is here, and my disciples worship me in truth. Those in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, they aren't defined by external religious activity. They're defined by a right heart for the Lord. <clears throat> so then he moves into those last two images of the garment and the wineskins. <clears throat> and his whole point is that the new is incompatible with the old. The new is incompatible with the old. So what's the old? It's the way the Pharisees were operating, external conformity to the law. They weren't seeing themselves as sick. But the new is the new kingdom, the new way of life, having that wholehearted devotion to the Lord that we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, having that chesed, steadfast love for God, coming to Him and saying, Lord, I need Your mercy. I need Your mercy. The question then for us is, what will our posture be? Will we leave the way of the Pharisees behind? Or will we continue to try to cling to our old wine skins that burst when you put new wine in them? The reason for that was they were dried out skins, little skins of animals. They cut the head off, sew up all the orifices, and pour their wine in. And when it's fresh, it's not brittle, and so it will be able to expand. But once it's old, that carcass does become brittle, and you can't put new wine in it anymore. And Jesus is saying, you can't have this external religiosity and let that be how you follow me. It will not work. The only way to follow me is to be on your knees, recognizing yourself as a sinner, because I have come for the sinful, not for those who think they are righteous. That's how these pieces go together. He's kind of giving us a big view of what it looks like to follow him in mercy. God invites and receives those who recognize their spiritual sickness. This is our king. And this posture is not a one-time posture. You may be like, yeah, you know, I, I came to Christ. I confessed my sin and he's forgiven me. It's not a one-time thing. It is a continual thing that we do before the Lord. Just like last week we talked about how we're continually confessing. For this, it's a continual posture. One of our elders said this weekend, forgive me, I can't remember who it was or even where in what context we were when it was said, but we have a temptation to be saved by grace and then live by works. When we need to be saved by grace and live by grace, continually broken before the Lord, needing His mercy. Now you have in your, your worship order two more kind of points, and it's basically our response. What do we need to be doing uh, going on and on? And the first one, is we must see ourselves as spiritually sick and cry out for healing and mercy. I hope that's been very clear throughout the day. That's kind of our vertical response with us and the Lord. We've got to see ourselves as spiritually sick. Okay, no surprise there. Because back in 13, you know, Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. We need to grow in our ability to see ourselves as spiritually sick. And there's kind of four tips I have for growing in this. One is welcome correction. Welcome correction. Don't fight correction. Welcome it. That doesn't mean that every time somebody corrects you, you're going to agree with everything they say, but welcome it. Generally speaking, you are sinful, and so whatever they share, there's probably some truth in it, and you can receive it with joy because it's for your good. So welcome correction. Secondly, when you're assessing the state of your walk with Christ, and again, somebody in our church said this a couple weeks ago, and my apologies, I can't remember who it was. Uh, Troy, maybe it was you. I'm not, I'm not sure. 
when you're assessing the state of your walk with Christ, don't ask primarily what you're doing, although that's not unimportant, because what we are inside flows out of us, but ask what you're learning. Ask what you're learning. What you do should be more of a gauge on the, the like a, a gas gauge as opposed to what's actually going on under the hood. Ask what you're learning. What are you learning about your sin, and what are you learning about the Lord? Those are two things that you should always be processing through. Thirdly, have one or two people in your life that you can confess your sin to regularly, all of it, just all the ugliness, people who are going to receive you and accept you. That way you can truly have your brokenness be right out there. It's hard to convince yourself that all, all is well when other people know that all is not well. It's good to have people speaking into your life. Have one to two people you can confess your sin to regularly. And then lastly, as you walk in these things and you see yourself growing, thank God for the growth. You know, uh, Paul commands us to work, on our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us according to His will and good pleasure. So when I see change happen, I look at that and I say, God, thank you. Thank you. Now, there's two types of people in this room. We have those who don't believe in Christ, who have not come to Him for mercy, and those who have. For those of you who have not come to Jesus, I invite you to do that this morning. He receives sinners. He receives you. None of us in this room are perfect. We are all broken. As a matter of fact, the more mature we come, the more easy it should be to see our brokenness. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. said he was the biggest sinner in the world. So if you haven't trusted Christ, come to Christ and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And you know what? He will, if you come to him in faith and say, I can't earn my salvation, but Jesus, I trust that you died for me on the cross, that your life was enough. See, Jesus, he wasn't a sinner. He was perfect, but he laid his life down for us, and he offers us life. He invites you, and he receives you, should you believe that he indeed can pay for your sins. Should you indeed believe that He is the Savior of the world and you? Now, for Christians, you may be wondering why your spiritual life feels lifeless and why you don't grow. And I would say one of the, one of the potential culprits is that you don't come to Him in brokenness or with a posture of brokenness regularly. You come with instead a perspective of, all right, what do I need to do? <clears throat> come with brokenness and say, Lord, I can't. Lord, I can't. If you remember from many months ago, it was, I can't, but you can. Trust the Lord with that. All right, so that's our vertical response, our horizontal response with one another. Seeing ourselves as spiritually sick should lead us to have mercy on others who are spiritually sick. Seeing ourselves as spiritually sick should lead us to have mercy on others who are spiritually sick. If you were homeless and living here in Sioux Center and somebody opened up a five-star hotel that was completely empty and the owner of the hotel came to you and said, come, live in my hotel. There is unlimited free room service to you. You will have your own room and invite your friends. <clears throat> you wouldn't then look at other homeless people and say, too bad to be you. You'd be like, no, come to the hotel. Come live here in the mercy of this hotel owner. And that is what the Lord does to us. If I truly believe that I'm broken, how can I not have mercy for the others who are broken? If you are struggling to have mercy 
on others. Let that be a check engine light that is saying, how am I not seeing myself as broken? The Pharisees didn't have mercy on the tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus saw right through it, and he said, I can tell that you don't know and love the Lord because you're not having mercy. And so for us, church, if we're struggling with this, that doesn't mean that you aren't a Christian, but let it be a warning and an encouragement for you to come to the Lord in brokenness. What's your response to those who are struggling? Do you say, I'm glad I'm not like them, as opposed to there, but by the grace of God go I? Or do you look and say, they screwed up, they don't deserve my love and service. I was okay, I figured it out. Or how about this? You may be thinking this right now. Oh, so-and-so really needs to hear this sermon, what the pastor said today. I know that can be a temptation of me if I'm ever listening to someone. I'd be like, oh yeah, if this person just heard that, man, their whole life would be better. No, no, it may be for us what we need to hear. Are we quick to anger with our children? For those of us who are parents, does their disobedience upset me because I think they've defied me? Or does it sadden me because they're missing out on the blessing of God's goodness when they rebel? So often for me, I'm like, well, how dare you defy me? I'm the Father. And I can justify it in all sorts of ways. Like, I'm the authority. God's put me in your life. And I, yeah, there's some truth in that. But a lot of times, it's, I'm just hurt that me and my mightiness is not being respected. Are you patient with your coworkers? Do you respond well to your boss? Church, are there people in the church that you struggle to move towards? All of these are questions that we can be asking ourselves. Let's experience the mercy of our great physician and let that move us to have mercy on others because, man, He came, Jesus came, and He has mercy on those who are sick. He didn't come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Here's our big idea for today. You must be sick before you can be made well. Praise be to God, we can be made well. Amen, church? All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you do indeed have mercy on sinners. Help us to see ourselves as sinful, not so that we can say, woe is us, but so that we can say, praise be to God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that you move towards the humble and the hurting. So help us to be humble and hurting. And thank you, Lord, that one day we won't be hurting, that one day we won't be sick, that we will be full and free and healed in heaven, that we will not deal with any sin any longer, both its presence or any of the consequences. Lord, we praise you that you, in your goodness, do move towards us. Thank you, Lord, for being our kind Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.